Mark chapter 12. Turn to Mark chapter 12. We are taking a break from James today to do part two in the series that we're going to be doing on Bring and Share Sundays, talking about growing in love. So Mark chapter 12, we're going to look at verses 28 to 34. So find Mark 12 and verse 28, and then we'll read it, and then we'll pray and get into it together. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceived that Jesus answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to Jesus, Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth, for there is one God. And there is no other but he, and to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. And Father, I pray that as we look at a really familiar portion of Scripture, one that we might assume that we get, Lord, that we would be honest and acknowledge that it's definitely one that we don't often do. In fact, Lord, if we're honest, we never do it. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would stir our hearts, that we would recognize not only that this is indeed a command, but that, Lord, you and you alone can give us what we need to obey it. Lord, we pray you would be pleased by what happens in this service. You would continue to work as you've already started. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Everybody says, amen. Amen. So this is part two of this series. And as I said earlier, we're going to be uh, taking sort of a break from, from the book of James when we're studying through James or if we get through James, something else. And we're going to be looking at Bring and Share Sundays, maybe four or five of them, at this idea of growing in love. And if you were here, um, or, or if you listened to it online, in fact, if you haven't listened to it online, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. But we talked about this on the last Sunday of December. We talked about that the, the motivation behind this series is what I feel God is kind of giving us uh, to focus on for this year. 2015 was a year of growth for us, which was itself an answer to prayer. We had really sensed at the beginning of 2015 that this was to be a year of sowing. And what we mean by that is like sowing out seed and trying to put feelers out there, trying to reach people as much as we possibly could and seeing how God might give an increase. And we saw us do more outreach than we had been doing in years previous. We saw more Sunday morning attendance than we'd seen in years previous. We saw even more finances come in than we'd seen in years previous, more baptisms happened than we'd seen 
in years previous, and it was a, just a really glorious thing. But there was also this part of me that thought, okay, those are all really good things, and I give God glory. You know, I thank God for those things. But there's a reality that if those are the way, if those are the things that we're measuring by, if that's how we say, okay, this is how we know we've grown, is that actually how God wants us to measure growth? And I was really stirred that really the only clear measurement that we're progressing, that we're growing, that we're getting, we're going the direction that God would have us go is if we grow in love. And so we talked about on the last uh, Sunday of December, we talked about this growing in love from God. In other words, understanding that the Bible teaches that we only love God because he first loved us, understanding that it's God who defines love it's God who's demonstrated love, and it's God who initiates love. So the kind of love that God wants us to grow into all has to flow from who he is and what he's done for us. Now, what we're going to talk about today is this idea of growing in love for God. Because th- this is what we see in this context. We see in this context when the religious leaders of Jesus' day are trying to corner him. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to trip him up and show that he really doesn't know what he's talking about. He definitely could not be the Messiah. In doing so, it, gets, it comes to this head. And it's interesting because in verse 28, we, we have this, this scene where there's a scribe. And if you don't know, a scribe was someone who was a teacher of the law. They kind of started off by those who would kind of copy the Scriptures to make sure that they were accurately copied. But in doing so, in writing out the Scriptures sort of you know, every, by every kind of little letter by letter. By doing so, they became experts in the law. So they often were teachers of the law, someone who would say, this is what God's word says, this is what the law of God means. And so you can imagine this man as he's sort of doing this, studying intensely the, the Old Testament law of God, what it says about God, what it says God wants for us and from us, that he, he's asking, well, what's really, more, so what's really the most important thing? He's wrestling, what would that be? And so he thinks, okay, this guy has a reputation of a teacher. This guy is answering his critics pretty well. Let's ask him. Let's ask this Jesus, this Rabbi Jesus. Let's ask him what the greatest commandment is. Now, what I really want to do is, 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 is look at this text and, and be as practical as we can about what it means to love God, what it means to know that we're growing in love for God. And I have to say, this is definitely one of those messages that if you don't pay attention, you're going to just feel condemned. You're going to just think, man, I'm rubbish. Or you might get angry and say, man, that's rubbish. Because it's difficult when we talk about this, we, when we hear God or Jesus talking about what it means to love God, the call, the command he has for us to love God, it's one of the easiest ways to show or see that we fall really short. We, we just fall really short of the standard that God calls us to, the standard that he's worthy of. And so I'm asking you to give as much as you can your full attention. I, I'm, I'm begging you, really, to kind of lean in and listen close and hear what Jesus is saying and why he's saying this. So we do handouts for you guys to help pay attention. So if you have one of those, have one of those. Because there's three main things I want to talk to you about. Three things I think we need to understand if we're going to grow in our love for God. Here's the first one. The first one is this. We need to recognize it's about relationship, not religion. 
Now, let me define what I mean by religion, because religion can have a good connotation or a bad connotation. I'm using it in the bad connotation. Religion in this sense, the idea that I'm going to do something to get in favor with God, that I'm going to build the bridge to God myself. I'm going to climb the ladder to heaven myself. That's what I mean by religion. It's going to be my discipline, my efforts, my works that puts me in right standing with God. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about relationship. So when the scribe asks this question, verse 29, Jesus answers this way. He, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, and he says, first of all, here's the commandment, here's the quote, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, do you notice in the Bible how the word Lord is all in all capitals? Have you seen that? Have you guys ever noticed that before? When you're reading the Bible and you come across the word Lord, sometimes it's just L, capital L, and then lowercase O-R-D. Sometimes it's all capitals. When it's all capitals, it's because what it would be in the, in the original language, in Hebrew in this case, when it was in Deuteronomy, it would have had the spelling of God's name, of the name that God sort of says of himself, Yahweh or Jehovah, depending on kind of how you would Bring it into your own language. But the Jews saw God as so holy, they would not say his name. So instead, or, or even would want, even want to write out his name, so instead, they would do this. They would write actually a word, uh, Adonai, but it was actually the word, what we might say, Yahweh. So when you see that, there's a word for it that I can't pronounce very well. I think it's tetragrammatron, which sounds like a Transformers movie, but it's not. It's actually a theological word. And it's, it's basically this, this, this thing of God's so holy, this is his name. And it's a way to identify the God of Israel in, in a way that's distinct from all other gods. In fact, this command, known as the Shema, was something that every good Jewish man would quote at least twice a day. He would say it. God commanded them to make sure that they, as part of their covenant with them, they would remember that, that he is a God like no other God. This is what we see happening over and over again as well. Every time the Israelites, God's chosen people, would kind of wander away from God, God would bring them back and say, who are you wandering from? Did you forget who I am? In fact, listen to this. Isaiah says it this way. He asks some really simple rhetorical questions. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? And he's saying this, Isaiah is saying this because he wants Israel to recognize, do you, do you get it? I mean, there's no idol or statue that you can build that's going to be a representation of me. You can't figure me out. You can only know me if I show myself to you. And this is exactly how God uh, revealed himself to Israel. When they were slaves in Egypt, you guys remember the story in the book of Exodus? They're slaves in Egypt. If you've seen the Prince of Egypt, this is what it's about. But they're slaves in Egypt, right? And they're going, God, we're supposed to be your people. When are you going to deliver us? And so what happens is God raises up Moses, who is an Israelite, but he's grown up in Pharaoh's house. And God calls Moses to himself and says, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to, to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. You tell my people to follow you out of here. I'm going to redeem my people, and I'm going to use you to do it. And Moses is like, uh, okay, who are you? <laughs> who, what am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to say sent me? 
And when he asks him these questions, this is what God says to him. Then Moses says to God, indeed, I will come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me. And they will say, what's his name? What shall I say then? Look, look at what God says. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. You see, he didn't say, here's my covenant name. That, he would reveal that later. What he says is, look, you say the self-existent one is the one that sent me. The God who is like un- any other. The one that needs nothing and no one to exist. The God who brings everything to the table. So when Jesus brings this up, when he's answering the question, and he starts with Deuteronomy 6.4, he could have just dropped right into what we have there in verse 30. He could have just said, yeah, just love God. That's, That's the command. But he wants to be really clear about the God we're talking about. See, here's the thing we have to understand. When we say it's about relationship, not religion, when we say you know, loving God is about that, we need to recognize that God is the ultimate personality. We talked about this last month. That reality that we, when we talk about the God of the Bible, He's like no other God that any man's ever talked about. The three-in-one. The self-sufficient one. God who has always had all that he needs or could desire and rejoices in it makes the universe and mankind only because he wants to give. He needs nothing. We bring nothing to the table. This is the God that we need to recognize. This is the God of personality. If if the Bible taught that God was one as in a singular person, which a lot of people make the mistake of thinking, a lot of Christians make the mistake of thinking, then any kind of love that he would share with us might keep us from, you know, might keep us maybe from judgment or punishment, but it would never convince us that we could be close. In fact, we never could be close because there could be none like him. But because God reveals himself as three in one, which I know is a bit of a head burner, but it's a, it's a reality of Scripture, because God reveals himself as that, the reality is we know that God is a God of relationship. He's a God of personality. He's a God who wants relationship. He sends Jesus, God the Son, comes in the form of a man so that we can have our sins dealt with, so we can receive his place with God and enjoy the same fellowship he's always enjoyed with God. Jesus wants to make sure that that we understand that the people who heard this understood that there's something unique about the person of God that affects what the greatest commandment is. But also, in saying this, in, in, in bringing up the Shema, He's also reminding them that there's no other God like him. In fact, remember the scribe says later on, you're right, you're totally, you're speaking the truth there. There is, there is no other God but him. And therefore, here's what we see Jesus doing in Luke chapter 14. We see Jesus making a very exclusive requirement. He says this, Jesus says in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And we go, how does that work? 
How does it work that the God of love says you need to hate? How does that work? What does that mean? Well, obviously, we know from all the other things that Jesus taught, like loving even your enemies, that he wants us to love our wives and our children and our parents and our neighbors, obviously. But what he's saying here is, he's saying your love for them needs to seem almost like hatred, like of no importance compared to your love for me. In other words, there's an exclusivity to the kind of relationship that you are to have with me. Not just like, you're my favorite teacher, Jesus, but you are the God that I worship. You call the shots. See, this is what we have to understand. We're talking about loving God. We are talking about relationship, not religion, but you can only relate to somebody as they are. You, you can't relate to somebody as you wish they were. It doesn't work. I've tried it. <laughs> it doesn't work. Now, this is hard for us, isn't it? It's difficult for us because we don't like the idea of exclusivity. Well, most of the time. We don't like the idea when it's, when it's required of us to be exclusive. We love the idea when it's required of others to be exclusive with us. Do you know what I mean? And this is part of our culture, isn't it? Isn't it a normal part of our culture to, to you meet a special someone and you decide you're going to spend your lives together and you go to some official service and you what? You make vows of exclusivity. I'm committed to you and nobody else at this level. That's exactly what God is saying here. This is what it means to love God. It's to recognize there's a uniqueness to his person and that there's an exclusivity to his requirements. That he calls us to relate to him in a way that we don't relate to anybody else. Now, I love Sarah in a way that I don't love anybody else. And I love my five children in a way that I don't love any other people or any other children. But I love God in a way, or I'm growing in my love for God in a way that's totally beyond either of those things because I'm called to that. I don't worship my wife. She knows that for sure. <laughs> I don't worship my children, at least I try not to. Sometimes because I'm so worried about what they think or what they are doing, I can in practice in some ways worship them, but I don't have that kind of commitment to them like I know I need to have with God. The, the, the commitment to God, the, the reliance upon God, the finding of validation in the relationship with God is so much greater than anything else. It's almost like everything else is hate. He calls us to this because of who he is, the kind of God that he is. Now, it's interesting. In doing this, you would think he'd say, okay, I'm God, so you come and serve me. But because he's a God of relationship, what does he say? Here's what I want from you, exclusively. Here's what I want you to do in a way that you don't do with anybody else, love. Because I am love, I want you to respond to me with that same love. In fact, it's interesting. Because here's what he says in verse 30, right? And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. This is the first commandment, love. See, so guys, listen, not only is God the ultimate personality, but love is the ultimate motivation. Paul writes about this. It's some of the most beautiful words in any language. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You guys have heard these before, I'm sure. Paul starts off, 1 Corinthians 13, by saying this. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass and clanging cymbal. 
And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. You see, if God was just interested in us being religious, disciplined and religious, you wouldn't have those verses in 1 Corinthians. You would just have commands that would say things like, speak in supernatural languages and you know, give, speak uh, great mysteries and, and have great faith to do miracles and you know, feed the poor and give your body to be burned. That's what I want. But God says, that's not what I'm interested in. I want love. I am love. I'm inviting you into what I've already experienced. Remember, God doesn't need our love. He already has all love. But he says, look, I want you to experience this and I want you to walk in this. Love is the ultimate motivation. And here's the reality. Verse 31, what does he say? And the second is like this. There's a connection, a parallel between the first commandment, love God, and this second one. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says there's another commandment greater than these. Now, in a month from now, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about growing in love for others. We're going to talk about that. But it's still important to recognize, listen, when we're talking about growing in love is about a relationship, not a religion. It is about the fact that God's the ultimate personality and that love is meant to be the ultimate motivation. But also, do you recognize that mankind is the ultimate beneficiary? God doesn't get anything out of the deal. We get it all. God says, I want you to love me. Here's what I'm asking you to do. I want you to love me. Remember what Jesus says in John chapter 14. Jesus says, if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. And what are the commandments that he highlights? Earlier he had said this. In the same night he had said this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. See, this is why Jesus gives us the command in, 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 uh, uh, on the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you know, you've heard it said, hate your enemies and, and, you know, love your friends kind of thing. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those that, that do good to you. Now, if you think about that logically, it sounds nice, but if you think about it logically, you realize that's just smacked. It, it's, you're basically saying, the people that take advantage of you, let them take advantage of you more. Why? What could possibly be good motivation unless God is who he says he is, love? The three in one. You see, when we recognize who God is and we think, okay, God, I'm, I want to have a relationship with you who is love. I want to relate to you rightly. And so I recognize that though these people that you call me to love are not worthy of that love most of the time, you always are. Do you see how this works? You see, God's not about, look, stroke my ego. Make me famous. Provide for me. He's not like other gods that say, look, I'm getting hungry down here. You guys need to kind of make sure you feed me somehow. Leave food on my altar. No, our God is the great I am, the self-sufficient one. He needs nothing from us. So he commands our exclusive love. Why? Because he wants to, us to experience his perfect love he knows it's going to benefit us more than anybody else. It's going to benefit humanity. So love's, it's about relationship. It's about rightly relating to God and, le- and learning from that how to rightly relate to other people. 
But also, listen, it's something we do, not just something we believe. This is something that's really important. Because we can talk about the love of God and go, well, that's, yeah, that's really nice. That's a good idea. But that is not the point. The question was not, what's the greatest idea? What's the, what's the most important concept, Jesus? What's the greatest commandment? What's the action? It's something we do. Now, if you look at verse 32, what do you see? The scribe, he's really excited about Jesus' answer. He says, man, well said, teacher, you've spoken the truth. There is one God, there's no other but him, he says. And to love him, he says, with all your heart, with all your understanding, your soul, and all your strength, to love one's neighbor as yourself, he says, notice, is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, you know about the sacrificial system maybe a little bit, that in the Old Testament, what God did with his covenant people, he says, here's, the, here's my covenant, here's what my, my requirements are of you, the Ten Commandments, and when you break them, because you will, here's how we're going to make atonement for your sin. And then my covenant with you is that you believe me enough to follow these things. I'm going to try to follow the commandments, and when I don't, I'm going to trust that your provision of these sacrifices is going to work. And within those sacrifices, there weren't just sacrifices that kind of atoned for sin. There were sacrifices that showed worship. I'm going to offer a burnt offering. That's the way that I declare worship. And there's this huge sacrificial system. You can read about it in Leviticus. And it's, it's complex, and it's actually amazing if you study it, it, it. All of it really points to Jesus. But there's this huge system, and the scribe rightly recognizes, he says, you know what? Way more important than that sacrificial system is love. Do you know why? Because that system is temporary. It doesn't even exist anymore. But love is permanent. Again, listen to this, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The Bible says, love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will fail. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Where there is knowledge, it will vanish away. And it goes on to say, and now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Do you know why it's the greatest? You know why love is the greatest? Not because it makes us feel good. Love is the greatest because, listen, faith only needs to exist until we see God face to face. Then we won't have to ha- believe anymore. We'll just enjoy. Hope or expectation only has to exist until we see Jesus face to face. Why? Because then we're going to know as we're known. We're going to be made like him. It's going to be amazing. But love lasts forever. This is where God has taken us to. Let's be honest. Isn't this what we long for most, Christian or not? Don't all of us long for love? Isn't this why we spend so much time trying to look good because we believe that if we can look good, we'll attract somebody who will love us? Isn't this why we sometimes will kill ourselves to achieve things because we want our parents to love us or our peers to love us? This is why we'll do things that even go against our conscience because we just want someone to love us. And God says, I already am love. And I already do. And I just want to teach you to walk in that same kind of love. Here's here's what he wants us to do. So let's talk about now practically. What does this look like in practice, okay? Here lies this other little half sheet, and um, uh, this will get on our website soon, so you'll be able to get it off our website as well. But let's kind of take a couple minutes to get practical. It's nice to talk about love, but what does it mean? What does it look like? Because it's got to be something that we do, not just something we believe, okay? 
Now, let me be really clear. When, when the scripture says, you know, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength, um, a lot of these terms can be used interchangeably. So the Bible can talk about heart and soul and mean the same thing, okay? So it's important to recognize that, that, that this is kind of a, this is a technique in speaking or writing. A he, it's what they call a Hebrewism. And it's kind of the way to kind of use parallel language. It'd be kind of like saying, we might say it this way, love God with your innermost being, everything that's inside of you, your core. I'm saying the same thing, but in different ways. Do you understand, okay? So that's a reality. I want to make sure that I'm, I'm being clear about this because uh, I'm going to divide these things, but not because they're, they are somehow are really each a different thing, but to, uh, to recognize a principle. Because this is indeed about us loving God with all that we are. That's what he calls us to. That's what he's transforming us into is the kind of people that say, all that I have, all that I am is about talking about your love, about declaring your greatness, about enjoying who you are. So when he talks about with all your heart, the principle there really is is directing our affections, the things that we really desire. And we all have affections. All of us want things, okay? What God calls us to when he calls us to this exclusive love is he calls us to wanting him more than anything else. He calls us to direct our affections towards him. This is something that we play a part in. Directing our affections towards him. In practice, it's, it's, it really, it's about us asking ourselves, asking God to, to examine our hearts and show us, you know, are our goals and desires pleasing to you, God? The things that I really want out of life, are they pleasing to you? This is a good thing to do. This is a healthy thing to do. God, are you actually pleased with what I'm doing? Now, with this practice, with this pursuit of wanting to grow in love with God with all our heart, there's an error we can fall into, and it's what I call self-condemnation. Because there's, in one sense, we, we would say, well, am I ever really totally pleasing with God? I mean, I feel that way sometimes. You know, I've been reading a book lately about productivity, a Christian book about uh, being more productive. It's, it's a great little practical book. And the, it starts off by saying, you know, it's important for us to recognize when the Bible tells us to be zealous for good works, like in the book of Titus, that that means that we are able to please God with the things that we do. And man, was that liberating to hear. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like, man, am I ever going to be pleasing to God? Because it seems like everything I do has, well, some impure motive, or I don't do it with all the gusto maybe that I could, or I've done it better in the past, or do you know what I'm saying? Or I've done the best I can, but it's still not good enough. But the reality is that because in Christ, if you've put your faith in what Jesus has done for you, that God has given you this perfect righteousness, that he looks at you and he's already pleased with you. The Bible says in the book of Ephesians that it pleased the Lord to save us. We already have his smile. Which means when we say, okay, God, I want to do good works to please you, we're not doing good works because God's frowning like, you're not doing too well today. We're doing good works because he's a good father that's smiling and saying, well done, lad, well done. You know, when my kids were learning to walk, I wasn't going, what's wrong with you? Get faster. We celebrated like idiots every little thing that they did. I remember when, when uh, they were little babies, they'd first be born, you know? Like, oh, look, they made a poo-poo, they made a poo-poo, they made a poo-poo. You're celebrating that the kid pooped. Why? Because you love the kid. Is our Heavenly Father not better than us? 
And he adopts us in our family, into his family, and he, he says, look, the good works that I've created for you to do in, in Christ Jesus, when you do them, even though they're not going to be done perfectly yet, they're pleasing to me. It's, it's pleasing to God. And we, can, we have to avoid that error of self-condemnation. It's not good enough. It's not good enough. It is in Christ. It is in Christ. Do you think when Jesus fed the 5,000, he tells his disciples, hey, I want you to feed these guys that are hungry. And they're like, what are we going to do? We, got, we can't get enough food for these people. What do you have? And that small boy brings those five loaves and two fishes. Or was it five fishes and two loaves? I don't know. But he brings the fish sandwich forward, right? Do you think Jesus was going, this is all you have? Well, that's what I have to work for. He was pleased that, that little boy said, I'll put it in your hands. This is all I have. He was pleased, and he multiplied it and did far beyond what anybody could ask or think. Guys, this is what we have to get in our heads, that, that it's, it's, it's turning our affections to, toward God and saying, God, you are so much more easy to please than any human being on this planet because you've already provided to take pleasure in me. You've already hid my life in Christ. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that amazing? I, I can, uh, that makes me want to cry for joy. But he also commands us to love him with all of our mind. And the principle there is, is utilizing our intellect. Now, some people do this more naturally than others. And, and I, I honestly don't think it's, it's always, it's not always about intelligence either. Because I, I'm, uh, yeah, I, I know because of the schooling that I've done and the kind of grades that I sometimes get or how difficult it was that I'm very average intelligence. But I love to think. I love it. So it's, it, in one sense, it's easier for me to do this. Now, it goes the same for the other, the other things on the list. Loving God with our heart, directing our affections, you might be that kind of person that just simply is, it's, it finds it easy just to be, you know that God loves you, he accepts you, and you just want to be pleasing to him, and you find that easy. Sarah's like that. My wife Sarah's like that. Sometimes I marvel that she's just like, well, the Lord loves us. It's going to be okay. I'm like, how can you be so sure? You know, of course he does. But it's easy for me to kind of like, I want to think through this deeply. I want to wrestle with things. And sometimes I've been made to feel bad about that, like you're trying to intellectualize the gospel. And that's not at all what I'm trying to do. I just know that there's something about engaging this mind that God has given me that can be glorifying to him. And he calls to do that. And here's the thing. This is one of the reasons why we, we spend so much time in this book. It's not just because we like information. It's a chance to worship. And so here's how we can ask ourselves if we're growing in love. Ask ourselves, are you reading and thinking through the scriptures? Are you just kind of going, yeah, it says that, I have no idea what it means, who cares, I read my Bible, tick off the box. Or are you trying to say, Lord, how does this work, what does this mean? Can you identify the core doctrines of the faith? Can you even know what those things are? What would you, if someone said to you, well, okay, there's lots of stuff that Christians believe and it seems like they believe a lot of different things, what are the most important things? How would you answer that question? You have to think. You have to study to know how to answer that question. Do you realize that in doing so, that's part of love? 
It's a loving God. God, I want to love you. You're the God who's revealed yourself. I want to study your revelation. I want to study who Jesus is. I want to know. What's the error? Intellectualism. Intellectualism is when I say, my perception is the final authority. What I've learned from the things that I've read or what I can put together uh, reasonably in my head, that's the final authority. That's intellectualism. Engaging our intellect is recognizing that God's revealed himself and I'm going to wrestle through that revelation. I want to try as best as I can by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God, to know what these things mean. We're also called to love God with all of our soul. The principle there is engaging our emotions. Now again, this is something that people, some of you guys are, are, find easy to do. You want to just express to God how great he is. And that's a good thing. Others of you don't. And it's an interesting thing because sometimes we can be so afraid of our emotions, especially when it comes to worship. And I don't just mean worship through song. I just mean you know, expressing to God how worthy he is. We can be so afraid of our emotions that we don't do anything. And, and, and let's think about this, guys. Do you know that the Bible reveals God as a God who expresses emotion? And the truth is we are meant to be those who reflect the God that we serve. That's, that's actually what we do. And so you have to ask yourself, do you worship Jesus or do you worship Spock? Hmm, Logical. Because I see Jesus weeping when Lazarus dies. I see Jesus grieving over a Jerusalem that won't receive him. I see Jesus angry over the corruption in the temple. Now what's the error we can fall into this? Emotionalism. I'm only loving God when I'm peaked out emotionally. That's an error. That's not true. Or... We look like we're loving God best when we're as emotional as we can be. That's also an error. It's bogus. As we go through James, we're going to get to where James talks about the, the wisdom that comes from below, comes from the earth, and he says that it's earthly, sensual, and demonic. And the word for sensual is like soulish. It's this idea that it starts in our emotions. I feel something. I feel something. God must be moving. Let's be honest, any of us can get hyped up in the right circumstance, right? Depends what you're into. I was at a uh, conference this week and uh, on Friday and Saturday doing some speaking and somebody asked me a question about politics, which I usually try to avoid because what happens is I get passionate. So they asked me this question and I'm like, oh, don't get me started on that guy, he's an idiot. American politics, very easy to point out, idiots. And I was thinking, ah, you know, and it, was, and it was like, oh, it's just so, so, so frustrated about it, you know? So it's easy to get emotional about something. That doesn't prove anything in worship or in our love for God. But at the same time, if you never get emotional about the truth of who God is, something's not right, is it? I mean, seriously, if you read about the fact, if you read the scripture, and you're convicted, like you, you recognize, or you recognize, yeah, it says don't do that. I do it all the time. Huh, probably bad. And there's not a feeling of, man, I, this is bad. I, I should do something. Something's wrong. If you read about the grace of God, or you hear a sermon about the grace of God, and you realize that you are love with an everlasting love, and you're kind of going, that's, that's nice. 
There's something wrong. We are called to love God with all that we are. That means engaging our emotions. Not getting into emotionalism, but engaging our emotions. Now, that's going to be different for different people, isn't it? Because we are different kinds of people. I'm a very emotional person. I'm loud and passionate, and so it's easier for me to, to engage with that. Other people, not so much. Other people, are just, they, they, they feel things. They're open about what they feel, but they don't express it as much. That's okay. That's not the point. The point is loving God with our heart. We're engaging that. We want to grow into that. What about this? Loving God with all your strength. It's missing a couple words there. I'm not sure why. The idea is stewarding, the principle is stewarding your resources. So the question we would maybe ask ourselves if, if to see if we're growing in this is, what are we investing our time, talent, and treasure in? What are we, what are we, what are we investing in? In fact, this, this, it's interesting how these things all really overlap each other because Jesus said, where your treasure is, where you invest your time, treasure, and talent, guess what else follows? Your heart. See, a lot of times what happens is we don't love God with our heart or we, we don't love God uh, because we don't love God with our mind. We don't actually engage the, to think about, well, what is God like? Who has he revealed himself to be? Or we, we think about it, but we don't respond to it. We don't, we, we don't think about it to the point that it actually engages our emotions. Or even more, we don't actually do anything about it. And this is what I, I mean why it's important for us to recognize growing love of God means that it's something that we do, not just something we believe. Let me say this too. The error that we can make with this is legalism. That's when I say to you, you need to do what I do or you don't really love God. That can be legalism. Now, can we also be honest that all of us tend to be better at some of these things and worse at others? Can we be honest about that? Can we be gracious to each other Humble enough to learn from each other? See, the reality is, guys, God is calling us to something that he's going to produce in us. This kind of love for him, this kind of understanding of his love for us and responding in love for him. A lot of food for thought there. Let's finish up. So if we're going to grow in our love for God, we've got to recognize it's not about relationship. I mean, it is about relationship, not religion. We've got to recognize it's not just something that we, it's something we do, not just something that we believe. But also, listen, we need to recognize this is the most important thing. It's not the result, I'm sorry, it is the result of God's love, not the condition of it or the requirement of it. It's the result of God's love. Notice what Jesus says. It says in verse 34, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom. Now this is, I think, a legitimate compliment. But it's also important to recognize he didn't say, hey, you're now in the kingdom. What you have is a situation here with a scribe, in a sense, he could see the destination. Yes, the whole purpose of God's word, the whole purpose of God's law is that we would learn to love him. To love him. He's the one who's worthy of that love. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. That's the purpose of God's word. So we could learn to love him. He saw the destination, but you know what he didn't see? The way, the path. Do you know how I know that? He was staring the way right in the face. 
Jesus said, I am the way. You see, one of the scariest things can be is that we can kind of get this. Yeah, there's got to be a God, and yeah, there's got to be a reason why there's beauty and goodness in the world, and he's got to be the one that we trust. Yeah, this is good, and recognize that's what I want. I want to do good things for people. I want to love. Love is what I want to pursue. Yeah, that's it, and then think you can somehow manage it on your own or start trying and just give up because you realize that there's no way I'm going to get there. You see, when it comes to being a citizen of the kingdom, that comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Grace. God's, this is God's unmerited favor. God loving us, though we don't deserve it. Grace. God's divine enabling, giving us the power to do what we can't do for ourselves. Grace. By grace alone. God has to initiate it. He's got to make it happen. Through faith alone, it's just trusting God. It's a relationship. It's not a religion. I'm trusting you, God. I'm not just believing things. I'm trusting a person. In Christ alone, Jesus is the one who reveals who that person is. We look at Jesus, we know who God is. See, here's what the scripture says. Listen, the scripture says in, in the book of 1 John, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, that's the the satisfaction of wrath, to be the propitiation for our sins. We love him because he first loved us. Listen guys, God wants us to grow in love for him, but that love is what we have to receive from him first. You guys have probably heard the story from C.S. Lewis when he talks about a boy who goes to his father and says, Father, please give me sixpence. And the father says, okay, and gives him sixpence. And the son goes out and he buys the father a present and gives it back to the father. Father, here's your present. And the father's overjoyed. But he's sixpence, none the richer. This is what happens. We we go to God and we say, God, I know I'm unworthy of your love, but I believe that you do love me. I see in Jesus proof that you love me, that you actually, you made me, you love me. I believe it. I believe your death and resurrection proves it, Lord. You love me. I want to give love back. God's pleased with it, but he doesn't have more love than he did in the beginning (laughs) because you're just giving him back what he gave you first. Do you get it? This is how you grow in love. For the, in the early centuries, uh, the beginning of Christianity, uh, the church would often do what they call, uh, what we call catechism. If you've been a part of Anglican church or Catholic church, you have an idea of what catechism is. It's basically that, um, it's a way to, um, basically you ask questions and you give the answers. It was a way for people to learn. New converts would learn through catechism. And then so during the Reformation, like in the 16th century, they were reviving that practice, specifically with their children. And one catechism specifically that, uh, I've not read very many of them, but this one I, I really did like what I read, specifically the very first question. It's called the Shorter, Westminster Shorter Catechism. And here's the first question it asks. What is the chief end of man? Why does, God, why, why does man exist? Why did God make us? What's the point? What's our end? 
What's the chief end of man? Here's the answer. Listen. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. God cannot give you anything greater than Himself. And He already has. In commanding us to love Him in return, He's only teaching us to enjoy Him. That's it. That's it. And Father, I pray you'd get that in our heads. Oh, Lord, please, let that sink down into our ears. Help us, Lord, to know this. Not just understand it conceptually, but to know that we know that we know that you love us and you are worthy to be loved back. To know that we know that we know that we can only love you back because you first loved us. To stop trying to earn something from you and just give back to you because you've already given us all things in Christ. Lord, please help us to grow this way we pray. And with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want you to think right now. No one's looking around. This is just a time for you to think about the Lord, for you to kind of wrestle through the things we've talked about. I wonder if there's any of you here who are maybe realizing for the first time that God does indeed love you. It's not a nice idea, it's reality. I wonder if you're sitting here today and you're going, I should love God, but I don't love God, and I don't, it's because I don't know if God loves me. Can I please just beg you to listen? Jesus came to demonstrate and to prove that God indeed is love, and he wants to share himself with us. It's so simple. A child can understand. It's so profound. It will change the most intellectual person. God loves you. He loves you more than anyone ever could, anyone ever will. His love is so great for you, it cannot increase. It's so permanent, it cannot decrease. He loves you enough to show you you can't save yourself. You've sinned against him, not only just by not loving him but by not, and by not loving others, but you've thumbed your nose at him, and yet he still loves you. And the Bible says if you'll turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus, if you'll come to understand and trust that what he did for you on the cross pays for your sin. And the fact that he came back from the dead proves that it pays for your sin. Guarantees you that you'll be rendered innocent. If you'll trust him with that, you'll know his love. 